So I want to I want to jump right in. Last week, we walked through the beginning of this conversation, this farewell discourse of Jesus to his disciples. And if they hadn't sensed it already by being around Jesus, or if they hadn't heard it in his words, or if they, they were seeing signs that he was performing, or maybe they were eavesdropping on his intimate prayers with the Father, he was making clear to them what we talked about last week, this, this tangle of he and the Father and the Spirit being one, and while different and distinct, it, it was sometimes even hard to figure out where one started and one ended. Like, that's what, when we talk about Trinity, that's what we mean there. This distinctness and this unity, mostly, though, this family and this intimacy. He was telling them also that his hopes were that as he was leaving them, he would send them the Spirit, and we'll celebrate this next week in Pentecost, the Spirit to be his presence amongst them, even in his absence, in that what is true for Jesus would then become true for them. This intimacy with, the, with the God the Father, this, this empowerment in the Spirit, that they, that they and that us, that we would slip into this stream of self-giving communal love, that they would welcome God's work in kingdom, and that they would then extend God's presence into the world. So this week we jump to the end of the speech, and this is a prayer. Go back this week and, and read through uh, John 14 through 17. Just do it each day. Mark that down. Put it if you have to make like a reminder on your phone, do that. Read John 14 through 17 each day this week. And it won't take long until you start to see this, this movement, this inner life, the, this, almost, this like cosmic, like uh, Trinitarian transitive property happening, right? Like I'm in you and you're in me, so you're in God. Um, and there's no, this isn't like, this isn't Xerox. There's no loss. There's not a copy of a copy of a copy. Like, if you're in Jesus, you're in the Father, and you're experiencing God as Jesus is experiencing God. So uh, we're going to jump into that prayer, and this is John 17, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus finished saying these things, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son can glorify you. You gave him authority over everything, that he could give eternal life to everyone you gave him. This is eternal life to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I shared with you before the world was created. I have revealed your name to the people you have given me from this world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. This is because I gave them the words that you gave me, and they received them. They truly understood that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you gave me, because they are yours. 
Everything that is mine is yours, and everything that is yours is mine. I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, even as I'm coming to you. Holy Father, watch over them in your name, the name that you gave me, that they will be one just as we are one. And pray with me. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you um, illumine us, open our eyes, open our minds and our hearts, um, open us to your spirit to, to teach us and to guide us, to correct us, um, and to embolden us uh, to receive your words and to receive your word uh, into our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus, in this prayer, it's not the most opaque prayer, is it? <laughs> like, it's these repeated vocabulary words that keep popping up, it's very hard. I took it this week, Gary. I, I gave that to Gary last week, and so I was a little nicer this week. Uh, but Jesus introduces this word glory, and it shows up over and over in John's Gospel. But not just in John's Gospel, but the whole Bible. I want to do kind of a straw poll. What do you think of when you think of glory? You can just shout something out. What, what does glory mean? Nothing. Light. Okay. Holiness. Okay. Greatness. Okay. Stuff made of gold. That's good. That's funny because when I thought of glory, I thought like a perfectly cooked steak, you know, like, or like an empty beach at sunrise, you know? Something, you know, or like I thought of like the finish line after a race and everyone is kind of basking in their own glory but kind of in a, in a shared glory, like a selfless bond that, that they fully spent themselves on a mission together. Or I thought of like a wedding reception, like after the, the wedding and then the reception happens, and like it's so cool, and it says something about what happens with a wedding when you bring together two people and two families and two lives, two like friend groups even, and you don't do it like I guess the wedding ceremony is a little bit of it, for for us it's 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 a like covenant sealing, but like you could you could easily just like lock that in with just like a contract signing. But for weddings, we don't at all. Like for a wedding, we celebrate it through worship, through feasting, and through dancing. Like that seems like glory to me, you know? In the Bible, though, glory is something really heavy. So Marcus, I think you're right. It is something made of gold, but not like gold foil, like real solid gold. It's something serious and weighty. God's glory was nothing to be trifled with. It, God's glory shines in all creation, but it also needs to be tended to in, in like a particular space, like treated as holy, set apart, given space, made a dwelling for. This is what the tabernacle, this is what the temple is about. God's glory is also something immensely personal. This is one of the plot lines of the Bible just how humanity is going to experience and welcome God 
in God's glory. This idea is intimate, it's community making, but it also kind of holds at a distance. Think about, think about when Moses comes down from Sinai and, and Moses was up there doing something special in front of God's face. Like that's the, uh, the Hebrew word for like in front of is like before the face of. And that's happening with God and Moses. And then when he comes down, Moses' face is shining. And like, like I, it's probably kind of crass, but I think about when someone comes back from the beach and they look like red like a lobster. And like you can tell they were in the presence of the sun, you know, like maybe on the surface of the sun. And that's what Moses looks like. And, and I'm sure he was like, what are you talking about? As his like glory reflects off of him to these people. And then Paul picks up on this theme um, in his second letter to Corinth and, and says, like, that thing that was happening to Moses is actually what we hope happens to us all. He says, and we all, with unveiled face, that we can handle encountering God in God's glory, we will behold the glory of God and will be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That we'll encounter God. This heavy, like the, also the word for, one of the words for glory is kavod. And it's like this heavy, it's like you need to say it in a bass voice, you know. And, and that, is, that is the end story is that we'll encounter God and be transformed by it. Be changed from glory, like lowercase glory to, to all caps Old face glory. This is how John's gospel starts. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The word Jesus, the son who existed from all eternity with the spirit and the father becomes flesh and dwells among us. And that word dwell means to put on skin. Like this is the word. It's like, um, who camps around here? Like, Tents now are like polyester or whatever, like nylon. Like tents then are skin. Like God, the word, comes and dwells, sets up a tent, moves into the neighborhood among us. And then John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. It's all about seeing in three dimensions, in front of us, God's glory. And it looks like Jesus when it happens. It just, it looks like Jesus when it happens. This really, like, dovetails with um, this famous early church father, Irenaeus. If, I, if Irenaeus was sitting in the front row, well, he'd probably be up here, but if he was sitting in the front row and I asked, what is God's glory, he would, like, shout in Greek, um, the glory of God is man fully alive, is what he would say. And I'd say, that's a good answer, Irenaeus. Um, but what he means by the glory of God being fully, man being fully alive, that's a pretty scandalous statement. That God's glory, his, his, someone said, like his honor or greatness or reputation is going to hinge on like a fully expressed humanity. Remember, 
when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we've seen God's glory and it looked like Jesus. God's glory, this heavy, special thing, is utterly apart from us in every way, but in Jesus has become involved in us and looks like us. The good news is that when God sent Jesus, the mission was for, for Jesus to heavenize earth. Like th- that's what's happening. Like We're normally really excited about Christmas happening, but what is happening is God sending Jesus to heavenize earth, to bring all of God down to earth. This leaks into Jesus' prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. It means God, whose work and presence permeates the whole creation, now resides among us. Glory has come to us in Jesus. So this week, as I said earlier, we, we celebrate ascension, the, the ascension of Jesus. And I grew up in the Catholic Church, and so I know we celebrated this, but I can't really remember ever knowing why or why it was important. I, every week we said the creed, and we said, um, you know, Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I always thought that that was just like the connecting clause between he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But I hadn't considered that it's actually important. It's not just like an and or a but, Right. Um, I want to go through, though, I think three things that this ascension means for us. And I think it has everything to do with God's glory, everything to do um, with our everyday lives and how we encounter and experience God, how Jesus, by his spirit, resides with us and how we extend that presence into the world. So first off, um, that Jesus ascended, I think it, it means that Jesus is with the Father, that Jesus is in control, but that that is over and apart from us. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that that should give us a lot of comfort, that Jesus is in control. It should also give us great pause. It means that it's really it, like... Um, it means that when something, it normally expresses itself when something really bad happens to us, like massively bad. That's when all the people come out, uh, all the Christians come out, and they say, it's okay because God's in charge. You've heard that, and it can be really annoying. It can sound like Job's friends to you, um, or it can sound really trite. This normally happens when there's like an election that we don't like, or like an attack, or like a diagnosis that, that just comes to us and we we can't figure out what real purpose there is in this for our lives that God is in charge it means that that's true (laughs) in that that's true even if we don't rush to apologize for God for these things it means that God is in charge because Jesus is sitting at the throne at the right hand of the father despite all evidence to the contrary and that's good news for us even if that doesn't settle anything in our minds or hearts. Why that's good news for us and how that happens is because the the biblical concept of heaven is not this, like, galactic place far away, but it's it's here. It's with us. Heaven is that 
that realm of God's control that's like parallel and intersecting with earth. Like you'll, you'll meet people who are really into science and who don't believe in God and one of their reasons is because we have astronauts and they, they went up there and they didn't see God. <laughs> that's not where God is. God, God resides near us. The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. It's at arm's length. It's in our midst. And Jesus, who died and was raised by God's spirit, has been crowned and sits at God's side in control. That's great comfort. But it should also give us great pause because for as much as Jesus pledges to be with us, it also means that he's apart from us and over us. That, that I think of Bob Dylan uh, comes to mind automatically here, who like prophetically warned us of the brutal things humanity does when we always claim that God is on our side, and that's tempting to do. But when Jesus is on the throne, it means we're not, and it means we're like looking up and and must be obedient to this king of kings who, who is completely apart from us. To paraphrase a character from Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, it makes Jesus good, but utterly wild. <laughs> he is good, but he is a lion. He is the king. This also means that the cross, where Jesus was raised up and enthroned, recalibrates the whole world. It, the cross recalibrates the whole world and, and it means it puts all the other powers, the principalities that act like they're in control, it puts them on notice. Jesus is enthroned. Jesus is in charge over and above us, over and above the powers. And I think our best response to this reality is first awe and then repentance, but also joyful obedience. This, is, this should make us fall on our face in worship, but it should make us then get up and get to work setting the world to rights as people who have now have a right view of how this world works with God in control, with the kingdom of heaven at hand. One theologian says, to embrace this Ascension is to heave a sigh of relief, to give up the struggle to be God, and with it the inevitable despair of our own constant failure, and to enjoy our status as creatures, image-bearing creatures, but creatures nonetheless. So the first thing that Ascension does for us is that it says that Jesus is in control. Second thing it, it does is it says that Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is a high priest praying for us. Have you considered that Jesus is praying for you right now? Like right now, Jesus is next to God, praying to God. And it's not in some sort of like message in a bottle sort of way. It's this like near conversational prayer communion that he's having for you and you and you and me and us have you thought about that's why we structure our prayers the way we do 
Like, I hadn't thought about this until a couple years ago, that, like, it kind of matters how we pray. It's not, like, vital because I think the spirit is this, like, perfect, non-glitchy, like, Google Translate for our prayers, even if they're really, like, bad and inarticulate. The spirit gathers our prayers up and makes them intelligible to God. But how you pray matters because you it, it, it puts this order to, to things, this order of the universe that you, you pray in the spirit because the spirit enables it. It churns you up. If you don't know what to pray, the spirit will pray on your behalf. The spirit will pull out groans too deep for words and organize them so, so they're articulate to God. You pray to the Father who creates and who recreates and who gives every good and perfect gift. And you, play, you pray through the Son, in the Spirit to the Father, through the Son who sits at God's side. And, and give this, not only it, it, does he just happen to sit by God and kind of have God's ear, Jesus is genetically able to ask God for things because he's God's son. Think about that advantage to have an advocate whose dad is the decision maker, right? Consider how cosmically favorable this is. Through that same spirit, through Jesus' spirit, this scripture calls it the spirit of adoption, we're made sons and daughters. So that, that when we talk to Jesus, we're talking to the king, as we said, but we're talking to a brother <laughs> who is going to talk to dad for us. And I see, this, <laughs> I see this play itself out in our family so often. Like whenever uh, Titus is scared or doesn't know how to ask anything, he just asks it through Noah. And she asks, and she is persistent. But the same spirit means that now with our brother Jesus, we have the same father who lets us cry, Abba, who lets us, who, who lets us talk like kids to our dad, even in our weakest states. I know when our kids do come to us, Rachel and I, we're, gosh, we're like so tired <laughs> and imperfect and like, often impatient, I'll speak for myself, not for Rach. As parents, like, it often feels like we don't have enough to answer all those prayers. And when you have multiple kids, especially more kids than you have hands, you often have more requests than you know how to field at any given time. This must be a little bit how God feels. But, man, it gives us a lot of joy to field those requests. Even if we don't answer them all because kids have a lot of requests and some of them are not good requests, <laughs> you know. They don't always ask the best things for themselves, but it gives us great joy to give them ourselves and our resources and our attention, to give them our presence, to give them whatever kind of like lowercase glory we have. Like that's oftentimes all we can give them. In, in, in doing so, we glory in them. How much more does a heavenly father long to hear from us in the spirit through Jesus? How much more has he given us access that we can 
come to him at, like and when he hears from us he hears from us in Jesus' voice. Imagine that. I think our best response to this is really good news that Jesus is our high priest is security. And I don't mean laziness by that. I just mean that we don't need to walk around feeling so insecure all the time. I think it manifests itself in a lot of different ways, like how insecure we, we tend to be. Like this, this means that like for someone like me that I walk around and I, 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 I like, for people that I love most, I'm often like harshest with or use like sarcasm towards or irony instead of just like kind words and the truth. And oftentimes that, it's just because I'm, I'm insecure, <laughs> you know? I think our insecurity can turn like a minor criticism into like a major assault on our character or our life. Or our insecurity means that any disagreement is an insult, and that's simply not the truth. <laughs> but Romans, Romans 8, which that's the go-to for this, this sort of prayer in the spirit through the son to the father says who is going to convict them who's going to who's going to convict us it is christ jesus who died and even more who was raised and who is also at god's right side it is christ jesus who pleads our case for us that's the case like we have nothing to worry about because this resurrected ascended jesus is high priesting to the Father on our behalf, like constantly, eternally. Because of that, we're connected to God's capacious love. In the next verse after that verse in Romans 8, says that nothing then can separate us from the love of God. None of our own, like, minor insecurities, none of, no, like, real forces that try to pull us from God can separate us from the love of God. It's love that has, has dimensionality to it, height and depth and width and length. It's love that we can't see the start of it and we won't ever get to the end of it. Also, if Jesus is our high priest, I think it means something for the way we not only interact with people based out of security, based out of an idea that we're always heard and known and thought the best of. But I think, I think it means something for, for how we think about people. As a pastor, it's always on my mind, but even more as a dad, this idea that I want to bring people to God. Like that's like mine, but also probably should be each of our mission statements, that we bring people to God. Like, I want nothing more than to be able to bring my kids to God and that they know the love of God that is in Christ by the Spirit. If you want that too, you should be praying for them. <laughs> and I, I'm not saying that at you. I'm saying that at me with you. <laughs> How much, like Jesus, with Jesus, in the Spirit, through Jesus, are you bringing them to God? If you want to bring them to God, bring them to God. <laughs> That's what a high priest does. That's what a priest does. 
Before you ever come to God, before you ever came to God, Jesus brought you there. Before you ever came to God, Jesus brought you there over and over at God's right hand. And he keeps bringing you there even now. So prayer, priesting on behalf of others under this great high priest is our best and first way of bringing people to God. That's, ama- that's so simple, but that's so amazing. You want to bring someone to God, bring them to God, and prayer does that. So Jesus is in control, and Jesus is a high priest. The third thing, Jesus is sitting in the heaven means that Jesus is humanizing heaven with us and on our behalf. This means that the first time, and that's a weird statement. I'll, I'll try to unpack that. This means that the first time in history, but for all eternity, there is a human being with a body in heaven. A human being with a body in heaven. That Jesus is forerunning. He's going ahead of us and he's changing the game. This means that Jesus doesn't do all this stuff kind of in theory, but like concretely and physically. And I think that means that our bodies matter. I think that means that matter matters. Because like we said, the incarnation and Christmas time, what we pray for and Jesus is coming in Advent is that Jesus managed to bring all of God down to us, but the ascension means that he's also managed to bring all of us back up to God. Not a, not a hologram, not like some self-healing body, but a body with wounds. When we read Isaiah and it says, by his stripes we are healed, I think this is what it, it anticipates. It's that Jesus will show up to God at his right hand with stripes <laughs> that, that say, I was wounded for their transgressions. But now they've become beautiful scars that tell this whole story of his time on earth. This means that Jesus rules on the throne with God and high priests on our behalf as one of us, even as he's one of God. He took all of that kind of circular God talk really seriously when he showed up in front of God as one with God with us joined to him. It means there's a human beholding God's glory, holding God's glory in a way that Moses was like a crazy pale preview. It means that there's a human being in God's presence with a scarred body. This means that, here's, here's a few things of what I think this means. This means that next time you go to a screen for like intimacy or connection with someone, and I'm not saying like FaceTiming your family is a bad thing, but so many of us spend most of our day looking at an image rather than at a person, attending to, to something here rather than attending to the bank teller in front of you or the friend beside you. Remember that there is a human being with a body in heaven. <laughs> Remember the next time your body is like breaking down 
or when you're tempted to, to judge your worth by scars or by like a couple extra pounds or by like some sort of cosmetic blemish. There's a human being with a body in heaven. Next time you see like a refugee baby's body on a beach or like a black body lying on the street, there's a human body in God's presence in heaven with scars for us. The next time you, you look with lust at someone else's body at the gym or, or on a video on your phone, there is a human being with a body in heaven. The next time that you or, or someone you know is sick or desperate, when you feel isolated, when you feel alone in your pain and your uncertainty, it feels like no one else knows what it feels like, not even people that want to help, doctors or friends or therapists, there's a human being with a body in heaven. High priesting on our behalf, in control, with a body. I think our best response to this, I'm guided in this text, is, is prayer and work. This is what the Benedictines would call ora et labora, prayer and work. And my brother went to a, went to a Benedictine college in Charlotte and played baseball, and you would see these priests in black robes, like, raking the baseball field, praying. Like, this is prayer in work together. I think there are response to this, Jesus having a body, humanizing heaven. I, I think prayer and work matter not just because they're like good and noble rhythms, but because that's what Jesus does. And we want to follow Jesus. Verses three and four, he says to his disciples, this is eternal life to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. I think that was him heavenizing earth. That we might experience eternal life by knowing God in the work that God has given us to do. This, this means whatever work that you're doing or whatever work that you're not doing that you're trying to do and no one will hire you to do, it means it's important because there's a human being with a body who does work in heaven. This means that we can be empowered and ennobled in our work with colleagues and customers and kids and strangers to work with God in our work. And then Jesus says in verse 9, I'm praying for them. Uh, and again, I think this is him humanizing heaven, bringing uh, it on earth as it is in heaven. I think that sentence, Jesus prayed, is maybe as valuable as Jesus wept uh, earlier in John's gospel. That Jesus prayed and Jesus, present tense, prays. He prayed for, for them and he prays for us for our protection and our provision and above all, he prayed for their and our unity, that they might be one as we are one. 
This week, will you slip into that stream of prayer? If you want unity, pray for it. Start to center others in your prayers before God. That's how you're going to become one with others is by, by centering them and bringing them before God. So let's actually, let's start now. And I think there's a way to do this in confession before we come to this table, uh, this table in which we're united with this broken body and poured out blood of Jesus. And then we'll continue this in our, in our prayers uh, later, lifting others up and, and charging their work and our work with protection and provision and purpose and unity. So let me pray, and then, and then we'll spend some time praying separately, and then we'll join our confession together. Father, we thank you for hearing us. We thank you for, for your fellowship with Jesus at your right hand. We thank you that that's not just some obscure bit of trivia, but that it means a whole lot for us and our hopes. It means that, that Jesus continues to know us and care for us and that we cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. We thank you for your spirit that enables us to pray. Lord, make us one with each other and, and one in you just as you're one. We pray all this in the Spirit, through Jesus. Amen.